after the second time I got blown up in my truck on the machine gun, I was pretty much like, yeah, I don't think active duty Marine Corps for me. I think I'm just going to graduate college and then go into the time corporate life and then invest in real estate. Quickly found out that corporate was not for me. It was so monotonous, clocking in, clocking out, same people at lunch, at the lunchroom, complaining about the same thing. They've been there for 30 years. And I'm like, this is not where I want my life to be. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. When I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation, and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies, and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Harris, and today I have a fantastic guest, Dustin Baldwin. I know I say this about every guest, but this was an exciting and fantastic episode. We dove into his background of getting into the military, into the Marine Corps. He wanted to be a fighter jet pilot, and actually that's something that I wanted to do when I was a kid. I didn't do that. He didn't do that either, but he actually went through and did a couple of combat tours, uh, and then that military actually levered into his experience as a private prison transport company. I never even heard of that. Then he had then exited out of that, has been a real estate developer, and now is raising money for Circuit City. All of these things, I thought Circuit City was dead. Private you know, inmate transport hadn't even heard of that. And then obviously leveraging that all from the uh, Marine Corps. So this is a fantastic episode. I'm excited for you to hear a lot of these nuggets. And then also how much Circuit City is just their brand name is worth. That is near the uh, end of the episode when we dive into that and what is happening with Circuit City today and how they're eroding away from Amazon uh, on the you know, consumer electronics. So let's dive right into this episode with my friend, Dustin Baldwin. Hey, Dustin, it is awesome to see you. I'm excited for this episode uh, to get a little bit more of your story. And actually it's been, I mean, I feel like we've seen each other before last year in December, but maybe it's, maybe that was the last time we hung out. So I was like, uh, when was the last time we hung out? I think it was in Austin was the last time I saw you. So was that last December? I think, I think so. it was. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, well, you have a new baby. You have like all these things going on in your life. And I know we'll get into some of those. But uh, so for the, the three people that don't already know your story, uh, I'd love for <laughs> for those uh, 
other three, for those three people, I'd love to hear a little bit more of your background. Take, take, you know, five, eight minutes, whatever it is, and kind of give them that, that bio of who is Dustin Baldwin. And then we can kind of take it from there. And there's a few interesting places that I'm uh, excited to go. Yeah, definitely. Uh, first off, thanks for the opportunity to jump on your show, Jake. It's a pleasure. And, uh, Yes, you are right. I uh, We have a seven-month-old now, so the last seven months have been quite the blur. <laughs> we are in survival mode. So, yes, time has been flying by, but it's been a blessing. So, yeah, so who is Dustin Baldwin? So uh, I'd say right out of high school, I um, wanted to be a fighter jet pilot. So I joined the Marine Corps and uh, joined the enlisted side because you can't become a fighter jet pilot before you go to college. So recruiter shows up in his fancy blues and is like, hey, man, join the, join the Marines go enlisted and uh, we'll work it out in between your junior and senior year for you to go officer. And then when you graduate college, you'll go flight school. So kind of fast forward through that story, um, joined, enlisted, immediately got deployed after my training to go to Iraq, did a tour in Iraq, came home, learned a lot of life lessons on that and started college. And then I did three years of college at University of Florida and, um, opportunity to deploy with those same guys to Afghanistan popped up. So I went back overseas with those same guys. We went to Afghanistan. And this time the deployment was a little different. Um, we got pretty beat up. A lot of things happened there. And it was after I've already been in three years of college, I'm like learning these business and real estate um, things. And uh, that was my, my major was business and a minor in real estate. And I'm learning like this fascinating information about how you can make money with real estate. So after the second time I got blown up in my truck on the machine gun, I was pretty much like, yeah, I don't think active duty Marine course for me. I think I'm just going to graduate college and then go into the time corporate life and then invest in real estate. So that's what I did. I came home, finished up college, got a job with Lockheed Martin, moved up to uh, Fairfax, Virginia, just outside of D.C., quickly found out that corporate was not for me. It was so monotonous, clocking in, clocking out. Uh, office Excel files every day, same people at lunch, at the lunchroom, complaining about the same thing. They've been there for 30 years. And I'm like, this is not where I want my life to be. So I had the opportunity to join Edward Jones as a financial advisor. They had a forces program. That's what it's called. They pay for people in the military to get their series six, their series seven and 66. So I moved down to St. Petersburg, Florida, where I became a financial advisor. I went through all the training, got my licenses, had my own office, was thriving at that job, bought my first house. I house hacked that house, happened to rent one of the rooms out to a Marine that I served with. And while this is going on, I'm still in the Marine Corps Reserves, still am to this day, actually. <clears throat> so the guy I joined the, I rented the room to. He said, hey, man, I really like your work ethic. I would really love for you to come and talk to me and another gentleman about coming on board with our company. And I said, what is your company? He said, prisoner transport. I said, what? Prisoner transport? Like, I am not transporting inmates, man. I enjoy being a financial advisor too much. He's like, no, no, no. You would be business development. You'd go out and talk with the sheriffs. You'd sell the business, convince them that they need to use private to extradite inmates so that they're not sending their own deputies. So after a few days... Uh, I thought about it and I was young at the time. I was, I think, 26. And I was like, you know what? Single, no kids. If this goes wrong, I can pivot back to Edward Jones. I took the chance, moved to Orlando, started that prisoner transport company with them. And we grew that thing um, through 
first we grew it to about a $4 million company. We ended up merging with a larger entity that we were taking some business from. And I ended up becoming the uh, president of that company. When we merged, I moved up to Nashville and then um, some things happened with the, let's just say politics got involved with prisoner transport and human rights. And some, some things were happening on the uh, DOJ standpoint where the CEO of the company is like, hey, why don't we go ahead and make a, an attorney our president and you can move back down to St. Pete and become business development. So win for me because being a president of a prisoner transport company is absolutely miserable. It's nothing but lawsuits, late night phone calls that your vehicle hit a deer and you have 12 inmates going to the hospital. All sorts of stuff happens. <clears throat> so now I get to move back to Florida and become sales and marketing all over again, which is what I love. So we fast forward to about 2017. We sold that company in an ESOP transaction. I made a little bit of money on that and used that money to further my real estate investing, which on the side, I was investing in um, co-living. I had a co-living rent by the room model in Orlando, Brandon and St. Pete. <clears throat> and once we exited, I learned very quickly that I could buy a piece of land and build on it. And at the end of that, I have a bunch of equity. So then that kind of made me learn real estate development and it hooked me. So I've been doing real estate development now for four years. I've built a nice little portfolio. I got about four projects in the works and I'm doing that. I've had several other ventures as a serial entrepreneur that I've been involved in. And lately I have just joined uh, uh, Circuit City actually as their uh, head of capital raising. So the IP rights were bought in 2018 to Circuit City. It's been turned into an e-commerce store and we are scaling that up. So we are raising Series A capital to go out and scale the e-commerce, business to business, e-com, and a store-in-store -store concept in a marketplace. So that's where I am. There's a lot going on there. So hopefully it's a little Dude, bit of that, an that intro. Is, that is awesome. I love that. Uh, we'll definitely dive into that Circuit City thing because I think that is uh, reviving a, a brand is, is going to be incredibly interesting. Um, and I mean, you have such a diverse kind of background and these kind of transitions. Um, and one of the things as someone, you know, of former army, um, I, I, you know, think that is, is, you know, so many things that I look back into as to, to young Jake were kind of set in motion because of the military. Um, and so I would be curious, like, how has your military experience kind of shaped your approach either, you know, to the financial independence and kind of the, the wealth, uh, creation that you're now working on? That is a great question. And I, I got asked this question by another, um, member of our networking group that we're in. And it was, what is one butterfly effect that kind of really shaped your life? And it, for me, it was joining the Marine Corps. Like every single thing in my life, I can point back that it happened because I made the decision to stand on the yellow footprints. And it's super interesting. Uh, it's opened a lot of doors from a relationship aspect. It has gave me a lot of credibility and it's given me the leadership tools. I mean, you know this coming from the military as well. The leadership that they ingrain in you as a young man and grooming you into a leader is incredible. Like you just can't pay for that kind of education. So that's one of the things I think is the biggest thing is a leadership B is actually the ability to take on copious amounts of stress and stay calm. Like when things are hitting the fan, it's like, okay, I got this adapt, overcome, let's come up with a game plan and let's, uh, let's get it resolved. So those two things are, have been just priceless that I've gotten from the Marine Corps. Uh, I love that. And yeah, that's, um, 
we have a, a family motto, uh, and you know, the Harris's, uh, you know, and one of the things I'll, I'll yell out to the kids is stay alert. And they repeat is stay alive. And so, you know, it's just, you know, kind of those components of, you know, back from the military was, you know, keeping your head on a swivel, being alert, being, you know, present to your own situation. And, and I actually had that as a, as a conversation piece that, uh, you know, on some social media things that we kind of manage and manage for somebody was there like, what, what does that mean? Like with all this craziness that's going on in the world right now. And I was like, so you can see that in a lot of negative ways, you know, there's terrible things going on. And, and mm -hmm. obviously it's, it's very, very easy in the, in, you know, mainstream media promotes crap, you know, mm -hmm. like it, it is, it sells, you know, uh, that, and obviously there are heinous and terrible things that are happening that terrorists are doing, you know, and, and um, I am, not glad that people are getting to to see that because I think it is is terrible, but it's also like this is not new. This is, has been going on for the the you know totality of human history. And, you know, th it is great that people are now kind of paying attention to that, but it, it is you know heartbreaking to see the the loss of life and and what evil is actually doing. But when I, yep. I pulled that back, it was the component of what does that mean to stay alert stay alive, you know, stay alert. And I go, well, how many times do we just like mail it in, in life, you know, yeah. that we're distracted in life that we are at, you know, you know, you you have a young kid, so they're not in sports and other things like that. But you know, when are you not present in, in that own environment? So now what does that mean? Well, that might be putting that phone away and staying alert and just present in this moment. Yep. And so exactly what you just said about being in the military is that that ton of stress, the ability to overcome. And I go, I don't know about Circuit City or, you know, development projects, but typically people aren't dying or getting blown up. Yeah, uh, that's correct. Like, not, <laughs> not normal, uh, you know, and so like that stress is much, much higher in the military. And so you're like. Oh man, that sucks. People are going to lose money. And and trust me, that is stressful in itself, but it is not like, you know, the stress of, of terrorism and evil happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things that people sh that have not been in the military sometimes fall victim to is complacency mm -hmm. and they get in the routine and that's how they become, you know, this would never happen to me. And then, okay, well, that's not going to have you prepared. So I love what you're teaching your kids. Stay alert, stay alive. That's such a great, great concept for just anyone. Well, and I'd love to dive back into kind of your story is you've had some pretty, you know, maybe they're, you know, to me, they seem a little bit radical transitions, you know, uh, military, you know, corporate, you know, financial advisor, prison transport, developer, you know, capital raiser, all these other things. And they seem like pretty big transitional pivots or shifts. And so like, how did you prepare for those things? Or maybe if you didn't, what were the lessons that you did learn from those, those kind of pretty divergent transitions? Yeah, great question. So again, I can attribute this to the military. It's like that adapt and overcome mindset. Like you can be get presented a problem in the military. Like you don't have the option to say, I can't figure this out. You have to figure it out. Like, so when things are presented to me, it's just a matter of, okay, I have the fundamentals. I'm a smart guy. I know how to learn this stuff. 
I'm really good with relationships, which is one of the big things that's carried my success over the last decade. And I know when to ask for help. So like when I go through those big transitions, it's like, yeah, I went from wearing a suit and tie every day to like wearing 5'11 pants and a tactical vest walking around. Like sometimes I was involved in some of the transports when I wanted to be or just going out there and shaking hands with sheriff's offices. But either way, it was relationships. So I was shaking hands with people and needing to communicate effectively to them. And, and just being a likable person has really helped that and just really caring about them. So, yeah, I mean, I'd just say the adaptability. Um, yeah, hearing you say that back, like all those different pivots, that is a it's definitely a lot of different things. So um, I think when people in general are just really just have the fundamentals of being able to adapt and create relationships and they're not afraid to ask for help and they're not afraid to put in the work to learn something, they can be successful in anything that they choose. And that, I mean, that's the biggest thing I think has led to my success is just not being stressed out about it. It's something I have to learn. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to be the best at it and go from there. Do you still want to be a fighter pilot? You know what? I told myself I would love to be a fighter pilot. I think I'm too old for it now. So I just need to make enough money that I can buy myself onto one of those blue angels. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was uh, interesting because I wanted to be a fighter pilot too. That was the whole thing of, of me wanting to go into the military. And what's interesting, because I joined when I was 17 uh, on a delayed entry program. And it was the army was the only one that was uh, willing to take you at 17 and a half or whatever it was. I actually wanted to go in the Marine Corps. I, I was like, I think their uniforms are nicer. And I thought like, I want to go in the Marines. And they're like, sorry, you got to be 18 and finish. And I was like, well, I'm signing up today. So uh, and the army recruiter was like right there. So I was like, and they told me I could jump out of airplanes. And I was like, oh, that's pretty close to that's pretty close, know, yeah. pretty close. You get the uh, thrill. Yeah. And, and actually I ended up not. And then, and, you know, I went to an MI unit and then I went to, uh, you know, air, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, well just anybody can sign up for, you know, airborne school. You know, it doesn't matter that you're in an MI unit. And I was just like, wait, what? Like, no, wait a minute. Like, oh, yeah. I actually want to fly airplanes. And so when I went to reenlist, uh, I told them if they could guarantee me warrant officer, uh, to fly Blackhawks because the army doesn't have jets. They're not fighter pilots. I was like, if you can guarantee me a contract to, you know, warrant officer school to fly Blackhawks, I'll reenlist. And they're like, we can't guarantee you that. And I was like, then I'm out. <laughs> I yeah. was like, that was, that was, I, I bashed my head against the brick wall enough times to be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go. So, well, at least they told you the truth on that one. That Cause is true. they usually and, don't tell you the truth when you go to join the military. They're like, oh yeah, no problem. You'll be in, we can get you there. And then you sign on a dotted line. And they're like, okay, whatever. Well, and that <laughs> was for the reenlistment. I would, I had wised up over the years. And so then on the reenlistment, I was like, no, like definitely, like I want to see this in writing. And they're like, you're halfway to 20. And I was like, seven years is not, I was like, I'm not a math major. No, that's not halfway <laughs> to 20. <laughs> Uh, well, um, you have, you know, done, uh, you know, these, these different things. And, and, and I think real estate has been one of the core things that you and I've connected about in real estate investing. And obviously you're doing it kind of on your side. So I'd lo love to spend some time on that around how you got started in co-living, 
you know, kind of what are some of the advantages of that, especially for people that are listening to this podcast, like why and how did you get started in that co-living space and maybe give them a little bit of context, a background around that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I've been in most real estate investments on a from a residential real estate investing standpoint, anything from Airbnbs, co-living, long-term rents, now ground-up development, one to four uh, units, built-to-rent style. So I've I've had most of that experience. The thing that originally drew me to the co-living is at the time you could get a lot more rent. So if I if I was buying a four-bedroom house. I could rent each of those bedrooms out for master bedrooms, 800, 850, 900 a month. And then the, the single bedrooms of the shared bath, 700, 750. And then they're splitting utilities on top of that. So it's the expenses are low. It cash flowed really, really well. And the long-term rental rents at the time were nowhere close. So over the years, though, the four bedrooms and the three bedrooms that I used to have started to become where it was getting like long-term rents were keep were keeping up now with the room rents and they were like kind of the same. They might've been $100, $200 off, but it made more sense to transition those into the long-term rents. Or if I needed, if I wanted to stay the co-living route, which is very hard to scale if you don't have the right systems in place, I would have had to add bedrooms to the interior of those buildings. And it's just not something I was willing to do. So I just transitioned those to long-term rents. And then I got into the Airbnb game when I did my first uh, ground-up development project. We did a, a build to B&B is what I like to call it. It was very, very successful um, pre-COVID. Then COVID hit and it got even more successful. And then the year after COVID, it kind of like started to go down a little bit. And again, it was like, okay, we're putting so much time and effort into this thing. Uh, my wife was managing them and like, All right, what if we just made these long-term renters, rentals and the rents here in Saint, Tampa, St. Pete, I haven't, I didn't mention that I'm, I'm here in St. Petersburg, Florida are, have just exploded. So now the rents are so high here that our cash flows that we would have as a long-term rental on our four bedroom, three and a half bath house, that's new construction is the same amount of profit that we would be making when we're turning tenants on an Airbnb and getting all that wear and tear. So we just transitioned literally everything over to long-term rents. And on the, the build-to-rent side, same thing. Now I'm building them and I'm doing the long-term rents I'm, and then I'm cashing out, refining, getting all my project costs back out. And then I'm just using that money and recycling it into land and doing it all over again. And I love that. And I, I actually like that little concept, the, you know, the triple B, the, the build to, to B and B, you know, uh, kind of thing. So, um, but obviously, you know, there's, you know, the market changes things, you know, uh, you know, especially what you're talking about, the four bedroom, you know, the co-living component. And then as rents for long-term rental change, then it's like, whoa, that doesn't make sense. So, I mean, like specifically, and, and, and I know about this is because I know a lot of other people that have, have co-living, um, it is very management intensive, um, way more so than a long-term rental of like a family living in a house for a year or two years or whatever. So, uh, talk to me about like, when, what are some of the like horror stories or war stories of <laughs> co-living, uh, to, of just as, as some cautionary tell for people that are just like, wait, I could just rent it. I can make, you know, more money. Um, it is not without its, um, you know, fraught with, uh, challenges. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's super time consuming uh, in 
in different seasons. So the co-living, the people that do, do co-living now that I know of, they do weekly uh, co-living with their rooms. I was doing annual leases. So it was made, it made it a little bit better because I would sign a lease and I'd know, hey, these guys are here for a year. So it was a little bit hand off, uh, hands off at that point. The problem I was running into is there's no property management group, at least at the time, that was taking on room rentals as a property management. They said, nope, we're only going to manage this one as one one door, not four. So I was forced to do it myself. And some of the horror stories that you run into, I, I mean, I've had someone die in one of the bedrooms. Uh, he, I don't know, we still don't know what happened to him. Young, young kid, 26, he passed away. Uh, luckily, I had a really awesome tenant in my master bedroom that kind of took care of everything. He called the police office uh, officers. They came out. They handled everything. I didn't even have to go out to the property. Um, but, I mean, I've had one of the other mistakes I did is putting a female in with three men. That was a terrible idea. Um, not for the reasons you'd think, actually. It ended up being where, like, her hair was clogging the shower and was causing a lot of problems, a lot of finger pointing. And then she had a cat. Also something I try not to do, but the cat was a service cat. So now I have three other tenants in my house that complain that they're allergic to cats, but I can't turn her down because it's a service cat. It opens up a lot of different things. And you almost feel like you're a, at times I feel like I'm the house dad or like a, like a, what do you call that when you're in a frat, the person that runs the, the fraternity houses. It almost feels like you're that, like when they're calling you and complaining to you, Hey, John used my spices and he scratched my, scratched my pan cooking dinner. I was like, dude, like I, you worked that out. You're a man, like you're an adult. Call me if something's broken. So it's, uh, I'm happy to have moved away from that. Cause now that I'm long-term rent, like the occasional phone call I get is, Hey, the AC is not working. And I call the AC company to go out and fix it. And that's, that's the extent of it. Knock on wood. But, uh, yeah, it, it is definitely comes with its challenges for sure. And I, I know now there are property management groups that handle this because the things are starting to, to actually, a lot of people are starting to adopt the co-living with the five, six, seven, I've seen nine rooms in one residential house and they're crushing it with cash flow, and they have people out there that will manage it now. So it's, the game is different now from when I first got into it. So I've, it's just not something I've picked back up since it's not something that is that I, I don't think I'd be interested in getting back into because I'm just loving the build-to-rent model of the development. Hey, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about something I get asked about quite a lot. Who does my social media video edits? Well, lucky day, I'm gonna share that now. It's Fat Unicorn Media. Whether you're in real estate or not, Fat Unicorn Media is super clever with some very exciting video edits on the short form video content. And they specialize in it for real estate professionals. They know how to talk like real estate pros because that's exactly what they do as their niche specialty. If you're looking to elevate your video content and social media game, visit them at Fat unicornmedia.com and book a free 15 minute call to see if they can help you too. It's been a game changer for me. It's freed up so much of my time. They are literally the who, not the how. I believe it'll work for you as well. Thanks to Fat Unicorn Media for sponsoring today's episode. And now back to the show. Well, I, I think you're in a fantastic market, you know, uh, that is going to continue to see upswing and, and, you know, because I went to grad school at FIU is like everybody was all talking about St. Pete, St. Pete, like that's the next place. It was Wynwood. And now everybody's like, ah, St. Pete's the place to go. And Miami has been growing like crazy. 
um, and still is, uh, you know, and that was kind of the thing that we, we discussed. It was like, what does Miami produce? Like, what is their thing? Because if you actually look at it from like an, an economic standpoint, like you look at the average income and then like what the average real estate is, you're like, nobody that lives here can afford any of this real estate. Like this makes no sense. And you're like, look at these wages, they're stagnant. And it's mostly a service-based like, um, you know, economy, people working in hotels, working in hospitality, restaurants, you know, cocktail servers, you know, bottle service, whatever it is. Like most of the people that live there work that or they don't work, you know, because they're independently wealthy. So Miami, South Florida exports real estate for the, the pesos of the world, you know, like it was yeah. just like, you need to park money, you park your money in Miami and South Florida. And then it is like, but the people that had money were now transitioning and pushing out to St. Pete. So I'd love to hear like a little bit of your kind of experience with St. Pete, just from a, a real estate perspective. And because I know you've left and came back and left in there. So like, what are you seeing in that market specifically that has you making that home? Definitely. Great question. Um, so I am also a realtor here. I don't advertise that because I only work with friends and family. So I, but I do know the market, like every street I know I've walked pretty much every street. So I'm very familiar. I've been here since 2013. So about 10 years, I did step away to Nashville for about six months and then Orlando. But uh, for the majority of the part, I've seen a sleepy town with like a decently cool downtown. It was very hipster at the time. Uh, not a lot of people went there that would dress up nice. And all the way today, it's transitioned almost into a Fort, downtown Fort Lauderdale, like Wynwood meets like it's just beautiful restaurants are popping up. People are dressing up. There's a lot of money that has moved here. Uh, we just they just announced the new Rays Stadium being hap uh, being built here. That was a huge thing that's going to revitalize this entire uh, midtown area of St. Pete. But there's just so much to do here. It's it, it's so friendly. There's an arts district. There's a Central Avenue district, midtown. There's flavor for every single person here. Young crowds, a little bit more mature crowds that want to that night get up dress up nice and go out for a nice dinner and not have thumping music next door at a club. There's a part of town for that. There's a part of town to have the, the parties and the bachelorette parties and the bachelor parties, the axe throwing, the pedal pubs. It's like all here. And I lived in Nashville for a little bit. And the best thing I can explain is why I doubled down here. Because when I lived in Nashville, they were just starting to to revitalize this uh, suburb called Germantown. And I saw like what happened to Germantown when I was there and I was like, holy cow. So when I came back to St. Pete, I was like, the same exact thing is happening here. Starting from downtown, it's just expanding out. And there's all these little pockets of cool spots with breweries and stuff that keep popping up. And I've, I've saw that early on. I invested in those areas and I've gotten very lucky with the appreciation of those areas and where I choose to build. And it's just been amazing. And, and the market today, I mean, it's still growing so fast. People are moving here because it's still somewhat affordable. If you compare St. Petersburg to any other city that has water, a bay and an ocean within five, like 15 minutes of each other, it's, it's very cheap compared to the other cities in Florida that offer that. 
Um, not to mention, we're only 15 minutes from one of the, maybe biased, one of the best airports, Tampa International Airport, in the entire country. It's easiest to get in and out of, and it's just a quick drive. And it's just, I don't know, I just love it here. We're definitely planting our roots, and we're excited to see it as things progress. Um, let's pursue on that that new uh, redevelopment for the Ray Stadium comes in. That's awesome. No, that's, I mean, I've only heard good things about it. Um, and actually, I don't think I've ever been there. So um, maybe I'm going to have to come Gotta fly come visit. To, to, to Tampa's awesome airport yeah. and then uh, come check it out. And then you'll have to give me a tour uh, around and show me where these areas, because I've heard exactly that same thing, like the Wynwood and the, you know, the, not say gentrification, but it's like actually that revitalization of so many of these areas and, and, uh, and I think obviously when you have success of sports teams, I, I love that's one of my big investment, you know, kind of thesis is when you have professional sports teams, the when they do well, it actually it amplifies the entire area. Um, not to say that, you know, all the teams in Tampa are doing well, but, uh, yeah. you know, it is definitely it puts a limelight on on the, the market. And I don't think people know that St. Petersburg is Tampa Metroplex um, yeah. area. So we could, we consider it just Tampa Bay. There's so many different suburbs, like you have Clearwater, Dunedin, Palm Harbor, Tarpon Springs, all Tampa Bay because you're within like 15, 20 minutes of Tampa. And the cool thing is, is like Tampa gets a lot of publicity, especially when Tom Brady came here. It was like Tampa Bay. And, and I always joke when people ask me about, do I pick Tampa or St. Pete to live in? And I'm like, well, do you like sirloin or filet mignon? And, uh, and I always, and people always go and they move to Tampa first and they're there and then they end up driving over to St. Pete cause we have much cooler things to do over here. And then they end up just moving here eventually. So it's interesting. And, and people that live in Tampa right now are probably like, ah, you're so wrong. We love Tampa because there are <laughs> cool parts of Tampa, but I'm just a very pro St. Pete guy. So uh, yeah, I totally get that. So um, I'd love to dive into that. Very unique business, prisoner transport company, and then taking that to kind of an exit. Um, that's not something, you know, you kind of hear about every day. I didn't even know it was a thing. And then I'm maybe like you, you're, I was like, I didn't, I didn't know. I thought that was the, the cops did that. Um, so, you know, kind of um, how did that, you know, play out building that that business up? And then ultimately that's uh, that exit, you know, because it was you sold it to the employees, correct? Yeah. Yes, we did sell it in, in uh, an employee stock option plan. And um, yeah, so do you want the shortened version or the long story? Because there's it, it gets pretty in, in the weeds and uh, it's well, a super a interesting story. But yeah, we got a little time to dive into it. And then but I want to make sure and I want to kind of, you know, make sure to leave some space for the Circuit City and what you're working on now, because I think that's another also super fascinating element. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to spend some time on this, you know, in the exit, because that's one of the other big things is I, I see people that are now have been building, building and building and they're now like facing like, what do they do? And an exit is on the horizon or the potential. Sometimes they self-sabotage. Sometimes they go, well, I don't know what to do in the future or what to do next. And so they will prevent an exit from happening or find flaws and other that. And so I think your experience in that is also of, of benefit to the people listening because you know, you've gone through that and then made it to the other side. And then you're also like, there's other things to do after you have an exit. No, absolutely. And I'm, 
I'm more than happy to talk about this part because it's where I cut my teeth on entrepreneurship and it was probably what gave me the most resilience and just, I guess, grit. I earned grit with the prisoner transport stuff because it is a very hard industry to be in. It's extremely uh, stressful and from a liability aspect, it's just, it's, it's really tough. So yeah, so when I moved to Orlando, I originally came on. I, I was not an owner in the company. I uh, ended up being a family-run company, and I was the outsider. I came and I, I brought a bunch of business on board, um, cold called a bunch of people, made some relationships. It took a little bit, but we brought the business on board and we grew it. Uh, the older brother and I had a great relationship, and he um, he eventually told me that he wanted to make me a 25% owner of the company while also making me the president of the company. Um, we called it executive director at the time potato, potato. But uh, I ran the company's um, basically everything with the exception of logistics and hiring was kind of my responsibility. Um, the, one of the, the younger brother handled all the logistics, which is think FedEx routes, but you're picking and dropping off inmates all over the country with, at the time we had 24 vans. And then we would also fly commercial uh, occasionally to the Hawaii's and we did Guam, we did uh, Alaska several times, the Virgin Islands. And then we also sometimes when clients wanted them there next day, we would also fly commercial with the inmates. Um, so we grew that and um, got to a point where we were bootstrapping most of it. We didn't really have any uh, debt. We were just reinjecting capital back into the company and we were paying ourselves a decent salary. Uh, it took a while to get there. I think I was making $500 under the table a week when I first went there and I went like six months without getting paid. It's a very stressful first year. I, I questioned myself in the mirror quite a few times, like, what are you doing? You could go back to Edward Jones and make well over six figures. And it was one of those moments where I was like, dude, do you even want to be an entrepreneur? Like, this is tough. And I questioned myself so many times over that first year. And if I had given up, I would not have been where I am today. I can guarantee you that. So I'm so happy that I stuck with it. So we ended up merging. Um, when we got to that stopping point of like, all right, we've grown to about a three and a half, four million dollar company. We don't really have any many options left. This is starting to get kind of big. Like we're we're getting uncomfortable here with the liability part of this because it's like one lawsuit would be really detrimental to us. And uh, yeah, the competition we were um, taking from it was a decently large company. We did a cash free merger. So what that is is basically we compared our financial statements and merge them together. And we each got a percentage based on the added value. So we ended up, our ownership got diluted way down, but we were, we had a much smaller piece of a larger pie and the liability now was being backed by, uh, we had seven partners of which there was, we were the minority partners. So our liability at that point uh, went way down, um, but it, we're still getting paid the same amount every year and distributions and a salary. And we were happy. I mean, a lot of the problems kind of got off of our plate and got taken on by those that, that company. So um, when they put me on to all of the entire book of business, I went on and, and basically looked at the strategy on the pricing. And we were pretty much the only people in town at that point, with the exception of one or two very small companies. And we just went and said, hey, we need to raise prices significantly. And we did. And I kind of adapted the approach that I did as a financial advisor. When you start to bring your book of business up, you 
this sounds terrible, but you start to like the smaller investors, like the people that have 5KN and 10KN, you hand those down to the guys that are newer financial advisors and you keep the much larger clients. So that was the strategy is to try to like the small clients just kind of, they would pay more and then the bigger clients would pay less because they're giving us more volume. So we did that and it worked very well. Our margins went through the roof. We grew our top line tremendously to where we actually had a, um, a search fund approach us and they wanted to buy us. They had an offer. We were going through due diligence uh, and we ended up getting a letter from, um, let me back up. We ended up getting a bad article written about us from a transport that happened before we merged with this larger entity. They ended up, an inmate died in one of the vans. Someone got a pretty bad photo of it with yellow tape and it, the New York Times through a, a sub media outlet of the New York Times called the Marshall Project picked up this article and they ran with it. They started getting involved in questioning the industry and started to, at the time, went to Loretta Lynch and said, hey, you need to investigate prisoner transport. There's some human rights things going on here. There really wasn't, but that article did not, did us no favors. And we were formally placed, the industry, not just us, the entire industry was placed under investigation by the Department of Justice and uh, it was a big deal. So at that time, I was basically asked, I was planning to be the president of that larger entity, but I was basically asked to just stay in business development, which again, I'm super grateful that that, that I got to remain in business development. Um, and this is a really interesting twist. So <laughs> the search fund backed out. So we're all thinking, ah, oh, we're never going to be able to sell this company. They had an offer for us, I believe for 24 million at the time. And we're all like, oh, this is great. We're going to be done with this. We can move on with our lives. And uh, they backed out, obviously. Nobody's going to buy a company under an investigation of the DOJ. So President Trump gets elected and he fires Loretta Lynch, brings on, I forgot who he brought on uh, to replace her. But prisoner transport no longer was an investigation that was important. It turned into the Hillary Clinton emails was the full focus of the Department of Justice and the FBI. So love him or hate him, President Trump saved our company, in my opinion. And we ended up doing an ESOP transaction that one of our partners learned about on the golf course. And we got valued at $42 million from an independent uh, fiduciary for the ESOP. And we sold the company and I remained on as a five-year employment plan, W-2, business development. And I had a five-year agreement with them where I basically stay on and keep the relationships in place and continue to grow our book. And I got a note payable. I got a little bit of cash up front, but a note payable to me at 6.5% interest for, it's a 30-year note, but they've paid most of it back already. And the cool thing about it is that I'm getting this note payable as a previous owner. And I'm also getting ESOP shares because I'm an employee. So it's like double dipping almost. And it's been a really cool opportunity. And I would not have had it had I not put my head down and lost a lot of my hair in the process. It's just I can't even describe some of the nights that I went through. Um, you know, when you get that phone call at 3 a.m. and and you've the vans hit a deer and or one of the drivers walks off and leaves the inmates in, the, in a van on the side of the highway. It's just so many crazy stories that happen in this industry. So. If you're thinking about starting a prisoner transport company, I highly advise against it. Don't do it. 
Uh, yeah. And that's like when that five-year lockup is and they're like, well, you're not going to go compete with us. And you'd be like, yeah, trust me. I am not planning on starting uh, and being a competitor to you. So, um, (laughs) exactly. Well, I mean, I'd love to, you know, uh, you know, like we did with the, the co-living, like what are, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of them, but like, what was like the biggest challenge that you had kind of as an entrepreneur in that uh, business or, you know, a few, if you can't think of one specific, but maybe if there's a few of those. The biggest challenge at first was navigating a position of, I guess you would call it authority. I wouldn't really call it authority. I guess an executive position when I am the only non-family member in a family run company, that was very hard. Um, Luckily, the older brother and I really had a great relationship. And to this day, I I trust him more than most people in my life uh, because he told me I was going to be a 25% owner of the company. And when I asked him for it to be in writing, he said, no, contracts are only worth about as much as toilet paper. I'm not going to put it in writing. So that's another moment in time that I went against my instinct of like, this guy's going to screw me over. And I kind of just went with my gut and shaking his hand under the oak tree behind the office and looked him in the eye. I was like, you know what? I need to put my faith in him because, and if I get screwed over, I do, but he didn't, he uh, kept his word and he left me when we went to merge, he could have cut me out and he didn't. Um, so that was one. Um, a lot of people say, Oh, you got to have things in writing, got to have things in writing. But I would say the biggest, more importantly is just doing business with people that you can trust. That is so hard to come by these days Finding people that when money gets injected into a situation that they're not going to stab you in the back and walk the other way. Like, and that I learned with him was like, wow, this is a unique thing. Uh, Because he could have easily, when we went to merge, he could have easily cut me out. And he could have easily just made him, his other brother and their mother, like majority owners and sit and kept that equity. And he didn't. Um, Second, uh, the insurance um, getting calls from the insurance company and saying, Hey, we're not going to insure you anymore. And being stuck with zero insurance and having to scramble and just a lot of curveballs being thrown at me and having to figure out that, well, failure is not an option here. You got to figure it out. And that's again, what I think the military kind of prepped me for was when things happen like that, you just got to figure it out. There's no like, Oh, it's not going to work. Let's just give up. So, and as an entrepreneur, I mean, everybody deals with this stuff and it's just, you choose whether or not to move forward or not. Hopefully I'm answering your question, kind of going at quite a few different points here, but, um, no, I I think that's, I mean, and, and obviously I think what you just said, the, uh, the navigating that kind of executive position within a family run business, you know, and I think that I see that as, as other things is like, Hey, you have an opportunity to get involved in a family run business, you know, maybe because of, uh, you know, well, you don't know the backstories, you don't know all those other things. And how do you do that? And I think that's an incredibly uh, interesting thing as far as to, to try to navigate. Um, and I'd love to kind of now transition into the circuit city. So you've exited, you've you know got this money, you're getting paid out. I know you did some other things as far as some capital raising and financial kind of components, but like uh, afterwards, but now, Circuit City, like, I thought that was dead. It was gone. It was, you know, like, you know, 
Montgomery Wards and, you know, <laughs> the Kmarts and the Pier One and all these other things all dead and gone. So tell me about Circuit City and how did you get involved in it? And then what are you doing with it now? Yeah, absolutely. So interesting enough, I actually got introduced to Circuit City through a gentleman that I worked with raising capital for GCC, Green Coffee Company. And he had met uh, the gentleman that bought the IP of Circuit City. And they created a relationship, decided that retail investment was the way to go. And they, uh, they decided to launch the Series A with it. So I met uh, Josh down in Fort Lauderdale when I was there for a Marine Corps Reserves event. Him and I had lunch and I was saying, hey, man, if there's anything I can do to help you, I'd love to. And uh, that turned into, because we had such a great working relationship at GCC, that turned into us starting a capital raising company together. And we then contracted with Circuit City to raise their money. So uh, believe it or not, all these retail brands like Toys R Us, Pier One, all those, their IP is still worth a lot of money. And they've been purchased for several million dollars, if not sometimes much, much more than that. Um, so they're still around. So Circuit City, after it got purchased, the CEO turned it into a strictly online. Um, you know, one of the reasons why Circuit City failed is because they had a uh, real estate holdings. They had a lot of the brick and mortar. They failed to adapt the e-commerce um, wave that was happening to consumer electronics, to, to everything, really, not just consumer electronics. The management uh, made some pretty bad decisions by hiring some of their key personnel to try to save on cash flows. They had a very high debt load, so they couldn't use any cash to reinvest into the newest and greatest strategies to compete with their competition. And then when 2008 happened, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and it pushed them over the edge. And in 2009, ultimately led to their bankruptcy and ultimate liquidation. And um, yeah, so that was that. And then now we're we're growing it. He's doing... Uh, Circuit City's done 120 million in top line revenue since 2018. Uh, I believe in 2023. Don't quote me on this. I don't have the financials in front of me, but they're set to do 25 million in top line. They did more than that during COVID. Uh, I think a lot of the e-commerce stores really thrived during COVID. Uh, but now we're back down to reality. We're doing about 25 million, and um, they're profitable. And this is just with the e-commerce and the B2B e-commerce space. And now they're looking to expand upon four different pillars, which is the e-commerce, the B2B e-commerce space. It's a thing called Powered by Circuit City, which is a proprietary thing that they're rolling out a store-in-store -store concept and a store-within-website uh, concept to different retail locations. Right now, it's JCPenney is being rolled out. So if you go to a JCPenney, You'll see a Circuit City kiosk inside with electronics, and you can also go to jcpenny.com and see uh, Circuit City electronics. Now that JCPenny never was in the consumer electronics space before, now we are giving them a turnkey service to be able to offer consumer electronics to their customers, and we're going to do that for more people. And then the final pillar is marketplace. So right now, uh, you have third-party sellers that have electronics that they're wanting to sell, and they sell them on Amazon, they sell them on Walmart. And similar platforms, but it, the problem is, is they're high, uh, high fees. So Amazon's FBA fees and, and the fees that they take to list on Amazon are getting higher and higher each year. And the margins for these companies are just getting lower and lower. So what we're offering is a consumer electronics only platform 
for third-party sellers to be able to offer their products. And we're going to give them their margins back. We're going to offer competitive shipping so they can keep up with the Amazon Primes. And we're also offering all the back-end support by fulfilling their orders for them and handling the customer support. So we're going to offer that turnkey service for our third-party sellers as well. And we will grow that. And we're projecting an exit in I via IPO or private um, purchase in 2028 for $1.6 billion, which ends up being a 7.35x equity multiple on the investment, which uh, I think is pretty great. So hopefully that's, that's a little bit about Circuit City and it gives you some context. Yeah, that's interesting because I was like, man, um, and I don't know, and we talked about this before we got on the call. Like I know that uh, some other people have been doing that, you know, uh, Alex and uh, Ty, you know, Lopez, and, you know, they've been buying kind of these, you know, the IP from some of these brands, um, you know, some successful, some not. And I mean, I, I think there are, you know, uh, questions to, to the, the validity of that, but I think there's also a very big, um, shift at least, you know, in, in the mastermind that we're in, in, in others of like buying businesses and, you know, like, there's a lot of baby boomers retiring. There's a lot of, you know, obviously Circuit City is not a necessarily a baby boomer, you know, thing, but it was like 2008, 2009 led to their demise, at least from the, what we know of it. But then there's this, this, this ability to rekindle and, you know, the branding and the IP of that. So I'm curious, like, it sounds like, you know, somebody has now kind of righted the ship and you're now a recent addition to that. And that sounds like there's a few different pillars of, of how they're going to re-monetize this. But like, um, what do you see as far as being on the insider, like how they've taken that and, and changed that and transitioned that IP to be more adaptable in the 2020s? Yeah, definitely. So I am pretty early on with them. Uh, I'm very selective of who I work with. So it's been a lot of um, learning about the team and creating the relationships with the current CEO and asking a lot of really challenging questions because I want to make sure if I'm going to invest in this, not only my capital, but my time, it needs to check all my boxes. And I'm I'm asking quite like really tough questions. So right now we were building out the slide deck, learning the PPMs. I've, I've looked at the historical financials. I'm the, the story tells a, a really great story. And I just, I really love the team and that he's built and they're very capable. And the, the space, like this is all things I've learned, right? I've never been, like you said, prisoner. I went from a financial advisor to prisoner transfer. I had to learn it from scratch. So I'm learning the consumer electronics space as we speak. And it's fascinating to me. I did not know that the entire addressable market out there is $505 billion. It's, it is massive. And if you think about it, like, Think about how much technology we as people consume every single day, like the hardware, the software, like everybody is a customer and it's just a massive market. So what gave me uh, real excitement over this opportunity is that we only have to capture 0.05% of that market to hit our projections, not even 1%, 0.05%. So that was exciting. And I think the path that he explained to me and how we're going to get there is, is very clear opening up funnels and sales and marketing, investing into our tech, investing into the right people and our oper and streamlining our operations. And the cool thing about it is that we don't have any brick and mortar stores right now that we're going to own that's going to hold us back. So we can shift really quick strategies if needed 
that make us lean and not being held down by all of this heavy real estate if the market turns. So that's the, some of the things that got me excited about it. Um, and I just really, I get a good grasp of when I meet somebody, I, I get a good judge of character. I don't know where I got this skill from, but most times when I think somebody's a good person, they end up being a great person. So I just, I just really have a good feeling about this one and I'm excited to be on board with them and, uh, and help them take it to the next level. Yeah. I think there's the, you know, what you just said there, as far as the asset light component of that, I'm seeing more and more businesses, you know, obviously there's certain advantages to having some assets, you know, but it, it is many times it bogs you down and it doesn't allow you to be nimble and pivot and the world is evolving. I mean, AI is, mm -hmm. you know, every week is coming up with a new like next thing. And you're like, man, if you're not able to, um, steer the Titanic, you know, and you see mm -hmm. the iceberg coming, you know, and that's obviously what's, you know, the, the tales of circuit city and toys R us and so many other, you know, uh, big behemoth retailers was that they just, they couldn't pivot. And, and it is a very challenging space. I mean, but in Amazon's just doing it better than most people. They're just, they're just a thousand pound gorilla. They've just, They've absorbed everything. So, but we'll see. I mean, um, right now, Amazon, I, I don't think this will, anything would ever go with this, but they are challenging Amazon and trying to, to break up them uh, through an antitrust. I don't know if it was a lawsuit or antitrust uh, investigation, but I mean, just like Google, they went through this as well. Nothing happened, but it, it was interesting to see that. And the thing is, like, there's not much con competition out there for us. I and mean, we don't have to take, the numbers that we would have to capture from Amazon from their consumer electronics are so small and insignificant. We don't even really consider them a competitor. They are a competitor, but like we don't have to take their market share. We just like a little blip. Um, the other interesting thing, that, though, that like we do have assets, even though it's not real estate. The IP of these some of these companies are worth so much money, and that's another thing that I learned over the last two months. It blows my mind what people pay for this IP. And they did a survey back in 2022, last year, about Circuit Cities, where it lands in people's perception of consumer electronics. And it consistently landed very high, right behind Amazon, right behind Best Buy, where people would buy their next electronics purchase from. And then when they go to brand recognition, everybody did not have a, like, nobody really had a negative feeling behind the brand circuit city they're all just like oh, i remember going there as a kid or yeah there was always a great experience there the customer service was so good they always walked up to me in the store and everything was great like people have a positive thing with circuit city so it's going to make it that much easier but um they actually got an offer for the ip for circuit city recently i think in the last two years for 40 million dollars just for the name and he's like you can keep your company we just want circuit city we'll pay you 40 million and i'm like whoa <laughs> that's crazy yeah so, i was like your whole prisoner transports 40 million bucks and be like just the names 40 million now you're like so is ip valuable uh wow dude i know you got to get uh going pretty soon so I'd, I'd love to do you know kind of as we're getting close to wrapping this uh, uh up if there's kind of like one piece of advice that you would give to somebody uh you know 
in a, in a you know, W-2 income or working in their business that they're looking to kind of transition out of that. And based on your own experiences, if you give them one piece of advice, what would it be? Rip the Band-Aid off. If you're thinking about it, your head's not even in where you're doing right now. So you just need to do it. And, uh, you know, there's other factors to think about there, obviously, if you're the sole income provider of your family and you can't just shut that off. But start forming your exit plan if that's what you want to do. Stop procrastinating and do it because otherwise future self is going to not like yourself right now because you didn't give them the opportunity to be the true person that you should have been. You're going to sit on your deathbed and wonder what if. Whereas if you take the leap and you fail, pivot back, go back to the W-2 if you need to. But if you don't take those steps forward, you're just never going to know. Don't do that to yourself. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been talking about Amazon and actually that's some advice I got from uh, Ryan Stenberg via one of his other colleagues at Amazon. Jeff Bezos has a one-way door and two-way door analogy. I don't know if you've heard this little story, but there's oftentimes decisions you go through like, hey, having kids. Having kids is a one-way decision, like you, you one-way door. You can't put that thing back in there. Like you're, you know, you know, honestly, not that you can't do that with marriage, but it's, to me, it's a, a one-way decision, but there's things like that. Like you just said, as a financial advisor, that's a two-way decision. Like, you know, Hey, I don't like prisoner transport. And maybe you didn't for the first year. You didn't, you know, you stuck with it and it turned out to be successful. And I also love the fact that you said that like anything, you can be successful on anything. And everything, if you just kind of focus your your effort on that. But then it's like you could always go back to Edward Jones. You could always go back to those other things. Like you can move somewhere. If you don't like it, you can move back. You can move from Nashville to St. Pete. You can do those other things. So I think that is such amazing advice that you just hit and nailed right on the head. So um, I have three rapid fire questions. Your answers don't have to be rapid fire. And so um, I little bit, I think, prepped you on this, uh, on one of them. But what is one thing, and I'm going to modify it a little bit, one thing you have invested into in the last 12 months that's bought you back your most time? Mm. In the last 12 months, the first thing that came to my mind was like, the upkeep of the maintenance of the house, but that's been kind of, I've been hiring that out for many years. Last 12 months. Hey, you know what? I, uh, that's just two months ago. I, this plays into me saving time, but I more so did it because I wanted to be around her more, but my mom was living in uh, Alabama and I bought her a condo here in St. Pete. She lives a mile and a half from us now. And she comes and helps us so much with, Parker. She helps me out when I need just things that I don't have the time for, like uh, just going to the, to the storage unit and, and picking some stuff up that we need from our storage unit and bringing it over. Like that saves me tons of time. And like, it's a win-win for me. It saves me tons of time, but I have not lived in the same city as my mother in over 10 years. And having her here has been absolutely incredible. And she gets to now be a part of her grandchild's life, which is, I know, truly uh, rewarding for her too. So that's been the one investment I did. You know, my mom spent a tremendous amount of uh, time with me growing up and she gave a lot of sacrifice and now it's my turn to give back and that's what I'm doing. So I think that that would be uh, the one thing that I've invested in in the last 12 months that's really changed uh, my life for the better. 
I love that. All right, that that might be my favorite answer of anyone that's is put out there. So that that is awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to call up my mom. I was like, maybe I got to go buy her house, um, <laughs> or maybe a condo, just an ADU or something like that. So um, I love that. And the, the next question is, what is the book that you have gifted most to other people? The Comfort Crisis. I love that book. Um, it is just a, it's by Michael Easter. It's a great book that just talks about how America, well, actually people in general, not just America are getting lazy and they're not doing hard things. It's where I learned about the Masogi, uh, which is that, um, you know, Jesse Itzler talks about this too. You, you sat in on that speech, but it just, it just talks about like doing hard things on purpose and not getting complacent. And just so many Americans live every single day and they, they sleep, they wake up, they sit in their car, they go to work, they sit in their cubicle, they get up, they walk to their car, they drive home, they sit on the couch, and then they go to bed. It's like a lot of sitting. And this just talks about like so many different aspects of how people are getting comfortable and it's killing us. So I just really love that. Um, it's not necessarily like a healthcare book. It's just it takes place of somebody, uh, actually an accountant that is going out and he's training to go hunt caribou backcountry in Alaska, in the Alaska Arctic. So he like tells the story and then he applies different things to it. I just love the book. So that's the one that I have gifted the most that one. And there's another one called the gap in the game. That is absolutely incredible. One of my favorite books as well. Dude, I, I love that. I've, I've heard about comfort crisis. I have not read it. And that is actually goes to same thing. We have one of our, our mottos, Harris's do hard things. And so when my, my son, you know, comes and be like, oh, I didn't want to do it because I was hard. And I was like, oh, good news. Harris's do hard things. And uh, <laughs> I, I had a, a, a good Masogi this year. Um, I, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, and so that awesome. was from Jesse, you know, I was like, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro. And fortunately I had a group of people that were, uh, better at coordinating the logistics as that is not my forte. And it was just, I signed up for it a year ago and I was like, all right, we're, I guess we're doing this, um, yeah. some riff within the family, you know, like, wait, what do you mean you're flying to Africa to climb a mountain? <laughs> like, wait, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, well, Okay. Um, and it turned out, you know, like exactly what you just said, the hard thing was, I was like, I haven't done something like this in like 20 years since I was been in, in the military. Like, I, I mean, I think I can do this cause I used to do hard things. Like, I think I can do that. And it turns out I could, I could, it, it was yeah. actually worked out pretty well. So, uh, the final thing was an ask of the audience, you know, so, you know, knowing that the, the, you know, people are oftentimes investors or looking to buy back their time, uh, in, you know, stop, uh, trading time. That's great. But how can they help you? How can they, you know, uh, do something? What is an ask of the audience and where can they find you? Sure. Um, well, first of all, if you're interested in hearing more about uh, the Circuit City Series A opportunity, you can reach out to me at uh, Dustin.Baldwin at CircuitCity.com. Um, but otherwise, I just say, like, I love people and I love relationships. So please reach out. If, if anything I said on the show resonates with you or you'd love to talk for 10, 15 minutes, you can add me on Instagram. It's at Real Estate Dustin is my handle. Um, but yeah, I would absolutely love to connect with anybody out there just from a human standpoint and a relationship standpoint. I love helping people, um, whether it be any of the wide range of experiences I've had um, that you have questions over. And uh, yeah, just here to help. Dude, Dustin, I appreciate this. I, I love this episode. It was uh, very exciting. I want to give you just a moment of gratitude. Uh, I, I, 
I think what you just said there, like you can judge and feel some of those people. I, I had that connection, at least that feeling with you that I was like, man, I just, I love Dustin. The way that you show up, not only just for this, this Zoom call, but how you show up in person and it is sometimes like, you know, I don't know, woo woo, like light and energy components of that. Like I get that from you. And then the way that you truly do embody that helping spirit. And I think obviously maybe from, from the military and the, you know, the, the aspects of doing these hard things, like there's this layer of like confidence and air of that and the way that you can just kind of figure things out. So I truly, truly appreciate the way that you show up. And I know that you've helped so many people and just taken kind of the bull by the horns and figuring things out. And I think I'm excited for you and for Parker to the path that you're going to lead uh, for him and for your family as a whole. So thank you very much for coming on the Passive Wealth Principle. Awesome, Jake. I'm going to fire back at you for a lot of gratitude to you as well, man. You've been an incredible friend. This was a really fun show. And I will say like, you are so genuine as a person and your intellect and mindset is just mind blowing. And the fact that you sang me happy birthday in a video and sent it to me on my birthday, I was like, that's next level. That was awesome, man. So I much gratitude to you. I always enjoy spending time with you. And this is a really fun show. Thanks for bringing me on. Awesome. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.